I V M. It's 326 BCE, and you and I are standing on the banks of the Jhelum River, where we started this season three months and 600 years ago. We watch Alexander's cunning ruse. We watch the son of the Parava Raja being pulled off his chariot and slaughtered by Greeks crossing the river in torrential rains. We hear the crunching of bones, the screaming of men, the trumpeting of elephants, the blowing of horns and conch shells as the desperate Raja refuses to surrender. We stand there through the night, splattered with rain, with mud, with blood. And the next morning, we watch the Raja at bay, surrounded by Greek soldiers, his elephant slowly retreating as what remains of his army gathers around him for a desperate last stand. And then, from the Greek side, someone steps forward. He's a young man, swarthy, muscular, maybe not yet 30, but already battle-scarred, with eyes that seem to have seen too much and that still want to see more. He is very obviously an Indian mercenary who fought on the side of Alexander. How he got there, we are not sure. Perhaps he was part of a larger mercenary group that had been hired by Alexander's Persian enemies and was eventually hired by the Macedonian king himself. But he was there that day, according to Alexander's own historians. They didn't understand what he said to the Raja. Perhaps he promised him that the Yavana king would respect his surrender and would not seize his lands. Perhaps he said that the Yavanas were only a temporary thing and they would soon vanish and that the Raja's kingdom would be safe. The first sentence would have been true, but the second wasn't. Either way, the Raja climbed down his elephant and surrendered. This young man, whom the Yavanas call Sandrokoptos, would soon become one of the most famous Indians who ever lived. And we still know him 2300 years later as Chandragupta Maurya. I'm Anirudh Kanisetti and this is Echoes. In this final episode of our first season, we're going to fly from one end of the Indian subcontinent to the other through time and space. And since I set out to show you how ancient Indian culture had not one core region but many, we focused primarily on the northwestern and southern parts of the subcontinent. Very often, it's easy to get sucked into the dramatic rise of cities and empires in North India and assume that nothing of value happened anywhere else. But I think I've made the case that yes, lots of other interesting stuff happened everywhere from the Deccan to Gandhara to the Coromandel coast. So with that established, Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Let's go to the Gangetic Plains, one of the core regions of the subcontinent, and see what it's been up to over the last 600 years. Chandragupta, that ambitious young mercenary who fought on Alexander's side at the Battle of the Jhelum River, took advantage of the disruption caused by Alexander's invasion and his sudden retreat and death. Within a few years, he overthrew the powerful kingdom of the Nandas, which controlled the eastern parts of the Gangetic Plains and almost immediately became somewhat of a legendary figure. But that's not all he did. 
By this time, the Gangetic Plains were already one of the world's densest urban regions and this adventurer actually managed to not just take over the Nanda Kingdom but also defeat most of the other city-states, republics and fiercely independent tribes of the northern part of the subcontinent, weaving them into a new political network with his capital, Pataliputra, as the largest hub. In episode 10, we heard Kanishka, the later Kushana ruler, boast of the fact that his empire stretched till this very same Pataliputra. But even the Gangetic plains weren't enough. Chandragupta soon led massive armies of cavalry, infantry and elephants gathered from all these places into the northwest where he defeated the successors of Alexander and established a de facto eastern boundary to the Hellenistic world. This was a guy who was very clearly aware of Greek ambitions but also of the importance of trade in maintaining a state, which is why he made sure to seize Gandhara, secure a foothold in western India and make sure that trade flowed from them along the Ganga river, building highways and instituting patrols to keep it safe from bandits. And as if all this wasn't remarkable enough, after somehow making sure that his empire wasn't shattered by rebellions and during decades of cutthroat politics, assassination attempts and the sheer force of human expectations which are always attached to a legendary figure, he gave it up. Supposedly, he abdicated and headed south with a great migration of Jain monks, walking thousands of kilometers south to Karnataka to a place called Shravanabelagola, the white pond of the naked ascetic, where he ritually starved himself to death. You can still see the cave where he's supposed to have done it if you live near Bangalore. Within two generations, the Mauryan Empire's influence moved far beyond its core regions in the Gangetic Plains across the Deccan. Mauryan expeditions are even supposed to have raided the emerging states of Tamarakam, which we saw in episode 8. And of course, we all learned in school how Chandragupta's grandson, Ashoka, conquered Orissa. Now, I'm sure you may be wondering why on earth the Mauryans were so interested in conquering everything. And the answer to that that we most often hear is, they wanted to unite the Indian subcontinent. But really, why would they care about that in the 3rd century BCE? To the Mauryas, everyone outside the Gangetic Plains were foreigners, whether they were brown or white or spoke Prakrit or Pali or Tamil or Greek. So something else must have been driving them other than the lofty goal of unifying an Indian nation which is very much a modern idea. So here's one possible explanation. Economics. Through this podcast, I've drawn lots of parallels between ancient Romans and ancient Indians. So here's another one. The Romans constantly expanded because that allowed their economic network to widen. Expansion allowed elites in Rome to access new materials for trade and manufacturing both luxury items and raw materials. They also had to expand to get the resources they needed to pay larger and larger armies to capture more and more resources. Sure, there were also political and cultural reasons why they did it, but it's not a coincidence that as long as the empire grew, so too did the capital city, Rome, which was one of the first cities on earth to reach the astounding population of 1 million. Pataliputra, the Mauryan capital, had a population of almost 400,000 people, meaning that it was easily one of the largest cities of its day. The Mauryan interest in Orissa and Tamilakam, though we need more archaeological evidence to confirm this, may have been due to a need to get the resources to fuel the rapidly growing cities of North India and the elites that led them. If this was indeed the case, 
we would expect that when the Mauryan Empire stopped expanding, North Indian elites would lose interest in retaining ties to the Mauryas. And elites elsewhere would in any case not prefer to be part of an unequal economic relationship, so they'd want independence too. And well, that's exactly the pattern that we see. Tangentially, much fuss has been made about how Ashoka Maurya supposedly made Buddhism into a world religion, but as we've seen through the podcast, many rulers use Buddhism in similarly political ways, and Buddhism outside India was mostly influenced by trade through Gandhara much later, and South India as well. Check out episodes 5, 10, and 11 if you're interested. And so I'm not going to talk about him at all. This is a podcast about the ancient histories that are less heard, and Ashoka is arguably the most heard of all ancient Indians. So bye bye to him and back to our story. Like all early empires, the Mauryas collapsed when they stopped expanding, and new local competitors emerged to fill the political vacuum. Ironically, even as the Mauryas were collapsing, both the Mediterranean and East Asia were slowly being crushed under the mantle of powerful new agrarian empires, namely the Romans and the Han dynasty. And as we saw, this allowed for the formation of vast new markets. These influenced the successors of the Mauryas. Trade flooded through the silk roads leading from China over land through Persia into Rome, and that trade also enriched the Deccan. Episodes 3 and 6, it enriched Andhra, Episode 5, it enriched Tamilakam. Episode 8, and enriched Gandhara. Episode 9, 10, and 11. The concentration of wealth plus the need for early empires to expand to survive meant that political competition got more and more intense. Diverse groups were drawn to India and set up powerful states that shone with art and blood and worship for a few decades while they expanded and seized resources from elsewhere. Regional powers rose and fell. The Satavahanas, for example, were indigenous to the Deccan and became powerful enough to challenge Central Asian groups that had set up states in North India. But soon, they too were destroyed by competition from the hundreds of local groups and ambitious merchants and warlords that called the Indian subcontinent home and patronage of art shifted to new centers. The material footprints that people left on the subcontinent always moved around. And as local groups interacted with new cultures, we saw how they would donate to new network hubs, such as the great Buddhist pilgrimage site at Amaravati in episode 5. Again, like the art commissioned by elites in imperial systems, these footprints on history grew rapidly until the networks that sustained them were reshaped by political competition and then moved elsewhere. Always, political competition went hand in hand with cultural flux and experimentation. For example, you had elites adopting elements of what we'd call Brahminical Hinduism, performing splendid sacrifices to establish their ritual authority over the political networks formed through brutal conquest. One would think that that would automatically bring about the oppression of women and their relegation to a secondary role. But as we've seen, the Deccan in South India at least, although women were certainly used as tokens of exchange to bind together elite families, Elite women also managed to carve out a role for themselves within these new states. The queens of the Satavahanas and Ikshvakus made donations in their own right to Buddhist establishments, building halls and monasteries and stupas. Descent from a queen of a noble family was so important that, as we saw, kings would literally name themselves after their mothers. And it wasn't just elites who were doing things like this, namely, 
taking the aspects of a system that worked for them and doing their own thing with it in ways that worked for local contexts. That's something we saw repeatedly in Gandhara. And that's the exact same thing that makes ancient Indians so strangely relatable to us, their descendants, 2000 years later. There are two major themes that we really need to understand if we're going to understand how India moved from the ancient to the medieval era. The first is the flourishing of Sanskrit as a language of power and culture. The second is a more nuanced question. It is about the evolution of the gods and their development into an aspect of state power. So what exactly is this flourishing of Sanskrit? Why does it matter that Sanskrit was being spoken in royal courts? Because you see, Sanskrit was already by that time a language of ritual, a sacred language. It was the language in which the ancient scriptures of the Aryans were memorized, the language in which the remarkable philosophies of the Upanishads were written. It was believed to be the language of the gods, perfected, the language that refined people spoke. It was like a super exclusive restaurant which was once only open to multi-billionaires and that was now also open to millionaires, which meant basically that everyone was standing in line to get in. It was prestigious enough for elites across the subcontinent to adopt, which meant that it was also a language in which diplomacy could be conducted. And not just diplomacy, but also cultural exchange, the spread of best-selling novels and dramas, for example, and more importantly, the spread of knowledge. You know how your smartphone gives you access to the internet? It's your way to access a vast repository of human knowledge, and so it's important to have it if you want to thrive. And this was something that Sanskrit was able to offer to ancient elites in a way that almost no other language could at the same degree. For the simple reason that Brahmins were already being patronized by rulers across the subcontinent and had been cooking up all sorts of ideas, some of them good, some of them pretty idiotic. In the first two centuries CE especially, with everyone from the Shakas to the city-states of the Gangetic Valley competing desperately for wealth and power, trying to figure out their place in a milieu buffeted by the hurricane winds of new cultures, we see new texts, Shastras, being written by Brahmin men. Though the dates are still highly disputed, it's quite possible that the final version of the Manava Dharma Shastra, also known as the Manusmriti, was written around this time. And because it was being written at a time of extreme political flux, with new ideas challenging established orthodoxies, it's pretty obvious why it has such regressive views on caste and women, prescribing brutal punishments for people and so on. Basically, whoever wrote it was super unhappy about how the world was changing, and wrote something that he thought kings would like because it laid down the legal framework to do terrible things to consolidate elite power structures and states. It's not accurate to believe that everybody in ancient India thought like that, because one particular strange chap somewhere in North India decided that that was how the world actually worked. So here's another really good example of this process. Another text whose final version emerged at this time is the Arthashastra. Now, both of these texts may have built off even older versions, but reached a form now that would appeal to larger elites with somewhat similar linguistic and cultural outlooks. The Arthashastra, unlike the Manava Dharma Shastra, is really, really interesting because even though it's a manual of statecraft with a remarkably pragmatic and ruthless outlook, it also has a surprisingly moral take on the importance of providing material and spiritual well-being to the subjects of the king, even though it's within a broader framework of how kings should go about building states. 
But the key point to remember is that these interesting new ideas were starting to be expressed in Sanskrit. By the 3rd century, the successors of Kanishka were already trying to follow in this trend. Instead of clearly Central Asian names like Kanishka or Huvishka, for example, they had Sanskritic names like Vasudeva. And the gods were also changing. We saw how the Bodhisattva Maitreya emerged due to the interaction of Gandharan Buddhist and West Asian influences. Similarly, Kushan ideas of Hindu gods also influenced the way that these gods were seen in the Ganga Valley, even after the death of Kanishka and the gradual reduction of Kushan influence there. A great example is the Kushan god Mahasenapati, the great general who is represented as an armoured warrior wearing a turban and holding a spear. In North India around this time, one of the most popular gods was a chap called Skanda or Kartikeya, who in his earliest form was a dangerous deity, because he was a member of a gang of dangerous male and female goddesses who could cause miscarriages. In ancient India, fertility and having healthy children was super important, because you need to have kids to help out in your farm, right? And so Skanda was worshipped to get him to, well, not cause miscarriages. And miscarriages are something that would affect you whether you were rich or poor, which only increased Skanda's popularity. Now, the thing is, what Sanskrit-speaking elites did is take the Kushan image of Mahasenapati, the great general who was loyal to kings, and merge him with Skanda. Then, they incorporated this new Skanda into the family of Shiva, by means of a very interesting story. The worlds were being shaken by a terrible demon who defeated the army of the gods. According to prophecy, only the son of Shiva could defeat the demon. But Shiva, who was mourning the death of his wife, couldn't be bothered to settle down and have a family. The primeval goddess was incarnated as Parvati, the daughter of the Himalayas, and after many trials and tribulations, married Shiva. Then, they settled into a life of marital bliss, and the gods were like, okay, we're sorted now. But Shiva and Parvati were so busy having sex that they just didn't get around to having kids, which meant that the god was still being troubled by that pesky demon, and so they all went to Shiva and Parvati's house to ask them to please get on with the job. They knocked, but nobody opened the door. They knocked and knocked and knocked until Shiva, half-dressed, came and opened the door. And the thing is, because he'd been interrupted in the middle of uh, something private, his uh, male stuff spilled out and Agni, the god of fire, grabbed it. But it was too hot for him to handle, so he chugged it into the river Ganga, where it formed into a golden baby boy. And so, according to these new legends, Skanda was born, and he became the loyal general of the gods and was a loyal son to his father and mother. Just think about what exactly is happening here. A god that was very much an inauspicious folk deity was gradually reincorporated into a pre-existing elite pantheon through a new mythology, a new set of stories, through family relationships with existing popular gods like Shiva. The god's duties were sanitized and used to support the values of the elites that were at the top of state structures. Shiva himself, as we saw in episode 9, was once just such a wild deity who by this time was extremely popular as an auspicious one. A dense, intertwined fabric of mythology, power, language, culture and knowledge was emerging and was being used by more and more Indian states. Everywhere it took on new forms, formed new relationships based on the power equations of the place. In some places, some sections of society were extremely powerful. In other places, other sections were things were changing in the subcontinent. 
Now one such Indian state was ruled by yet another man called Chandragupta, no relation to the Maurya. This man may have been a vassal of the Kushanas and as the Kushanas retreated to Gandhara, thrown out by the untamable, indomitable republics and chiefdoms and monarchies of North India, he broke free. In the desperate competition, it was critical for states to have strong allies and so Chandra married a princess of the Lichavi tribe an ancient tribal republic that had managed to take control of the old Mauryan capital of Pataliputra. And there, perhaps, was born a child who would take the existing cultural trend and create a political entity that would utterly transform the entire Indian subcontinent. He was to be among the first of a new sort of king, cultured, violent, Sanskrit-speaking. His armies would rampage across the subcontinent from sea to shining sea and inadvertently change India profoundly for centuries thereafter. His name was guarded by the sea, Samudra Gupta, and he would build up one of the most famous South Asian states of all time, the Gupta Empire. Season 2 of Echoes of India will begin with his story. We'll be back, even more bloody awesome, six weeks from now on the 27th of March. Mark your calendars. I want to hear what you think of Echoes of India. Keep in touch with me on Twitter at Akanisetti, A-K-A-N-I-S-E-T-T-I, or Instagram, just search for my name. Uh, it'll be fun because I keep tweeting stuff about ancient India and putting up photos of my travel and research. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to our first season. It's been an absolute joy hearing the outpouring of love that we've gotten from so many listeners in the last three months. Uh, it's been an absolute roller coaster finding sources for each episode, reading through dozens of books and papers, and writing a total of nearly 50,000 words in 90 days. But I'd say it's absolutely been worth it. I'd like to personally thank Karthik Mohan, my producer at IVM Podcast, his colleague Teja Sringarpure, our brilliant audio engineer who really helped us bring Ancient India to life exactly the way that I imagined it in my head, and of course Swati Bakshi, who used to be the head of production at IVM and really helped make Echoes of India the podcast that it is today. Uh, she now hosts Cinemaya, a Hindi podcast about women in the film world, which you guys may want to check out. A huge thank you to all my amazing colleagues at the Takshila Institution, who volunteered their time to bring ancient India back to life. Uh, you might want to check them out on Twitter as well, by the way. I'd also like to give a shout out to the O2 Pod Collective and especially to Saif for their awesome work building a podcasting community in Bangalore and of course to CastBox and Apple Podcasts for helping Echoes reach you all. Now I'm off on a vacation and you'll be hearing from Samadra Gupta and me very, very soon. Until we meet again. If you like this podcast, why not leave us a rating and review? And don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. While you're at it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at IVM Podcasts. And if you have questions or comments on this episode of Echoes, I'm at Ekanisetti on Twitter and at Anirudha Devaraya on Instagram. <laughs>